Hi, everybody. My name is Aaron Solomon, and welcome back to the Next Level Podcast. We're getting deep into season three, and we have an absolutely amazing guest joining us today from Toronto. I'm going to give him a very quick uh, lead in here. So we got John Pasalis, and John is the president of Realosophy Realty. John is not only a real estate broker. For years, he's been a specialist in kind of the intersection between real estate and data analysis. Because he's such an expert in this, he's actually even begun a PhD uh, in all of these wonderful things. So John, welcome to the podcast today. We've got a lot to talk about. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Yeah, definitely. It's my pleasure. So um, you know, you're based in Toronto and you've got a successful real estate business in Toronto. I used to live in Toronto. And I know that we both think that Toronto is not just a city in isolation. It's indicative of a lot of things that are happening in the real estate world today. True? Absolutely. Definitely. So if you had to summarize for listeners, and some of our listeners will know Toronto and they'll know Canada. And for other listeners, Toronto is just going to be one of those global cities that pops up along with a whole bunch of other names. What are a couple of the major issues happening in Toronto today that's affecting people's ability to live in the city? So yeah, I mean, the, the thing impacting Toronto is really the, the similar types of factors that are impacting a lot of what, these, what we call these superstar cities around the world. And, and these are cities that um, you know, are, are kind of global magnets for people, both uh, you know, to immigrate to um, and they tend to be very supply constrained cities. So we think of, you know, markets like San Francisco, New York, London. Um, so it's very difficult to build in these cities. It's attracting a lot of people from overseas. Uh, the people that attracts tends to be uh, significantly wealthier than sort of the local population. And what that ends up doing is it ends up, of course, pushing house prices up because the people moving into the city have, have much higher incomes. Uh, and when we, you know, on top of all of that, a lot of these cities are also seeing a lot of, you know, global wealth that are just being kind of invested in, in single family homes um, because single family homes have, have performed well as an asset. And that's what they see. And, and all of these factors combined are making it pretty hard for people to live in, in Toronto and, and, uh, and afford a place to live effectively. I would layer one thing in on top of all the great stuff that you just said. When I was living in Toronto from, let's say, 2010 to 2017, one of the big pushes, especially under Mayor John Tory, uh, was for Toronto to become a global technology hub. Some people kind of derisively use terms like Silicon Valley North, but nonetheless, the idea was attract to attract the top tech companies around the world, attract top tech talent. And Toronto is extremely successful in doing that. And that's one other thing I think that needs to be factored into this, you know, fairly tough equation for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and I mean, Toronto has been doing a lot better at uh, trying to attract that type of talent and trying to attract corporations that are looking that type of skill set, which is one of the reasons why uh, you know, immigration has been moving in Canada and, and especially in Toronto because a lot of the companies that are, are setting up shop here uh, want that talent as well. So definitely that's kind of the, one of the big sectors that has been driving uh, the city for sure. 
So for those who listen regularly to the podcast, you know, this theme so far is going to sound a little bit familiar to uh, the conversation I had with somebody in Berlin a few weeks ago. And we were bemoaning in Berlin the fact that, you know, a flat that would have rented for $300 under some kind of rent control like 15 years ago is getting close to $3,000 now in the open market in Berlin uh, and places, you know, obviously Germans, the percentage of the German population that buys a home is far less than the North American population that buys a home. But still, it's important for people to understand that the things that we're talking about today don't exist in isolation in Toronto at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of Torontonians think that uh, this is a a Toronto trend, but um, you know, these, these trends that have been kind of pushing prices up have been global. I mean, and the one interesting thing about this pandemic uh, is that, glo- you know, globally, house prices effectively boomed everywhere, which is not what one usually expects to happen during, during a recession. So it's really interesting that we're seeing these, these global trends in housing markets. One thing that is unique for people to understand Toronto, and of course, you know, we follow each other on social media, and I really liked one of your tweets yesterday, which is that things are often very unpredictable in Toronto. Things boom, and then things kind of plateau. And even when one looks back, experts like you look back at the reasons, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to understand why. So kind of summarize for people a little bit, how, you know, during the coronavirus, you know, rents went down and kind of what's happened since then to rents and to prices and demand. Yeah, I mean, and it's a great point you're making. I mean, the reason sometimes these housing markets are impossible to predict is because, I mean, a lot of economists look at it and and hope and expect everything's going to be driven by these, you know, quote unquote, fundamental factors. Uh, But a lot of housing is driven by behavioral factors. and, And, you know, trying to predict those is like trying to predict people's uh, decisions about housing on a large scale. And when we look at uh, coronavirus, really what happened in the GTA is, you know, we went into our first lockdown in March and April, everything just stopped. Uh, People weren't buying houses, people weren't doing anything. Um, And then all of a sudden, once things started to open up in June, you know, most people still thought it was going to be a sluggish market where there's obviously a lot of concerns about a deep recession. A lot of the mood was pessimistic. But you know, what happened was people just rushed back into the market. And it was interesting. I mean, uh, a lot of the active buyers rushed back then because rates started to fall below 2%. A lot of people who were renting wanted to get out of their dense condos. So they either rented out of the city or just decided to buy outside of the city. Um, and it created this massive demand boom. And, you know, by, by the fall, you know, houses were getting, you know, 20 to 50 offers on their offer nights. Like it was just it's a complete, completely irrational market um, where prices were rising. I'd say probably like close to seven, eight percent per month over the span of two or three months. Um, and it's and it really has exploded. <clears throat> and since then, I mean, we've seen kind of this plateauing in the suburbs. That's usually where most of the, the acceleration happened. Downtown rents fell about 20% and are starting to recover now uh, as more people just start looking at, you know, moving back to the downtown core and are kind of a little bit more comfortable with everything that's going on health wise. You and I once talked about one of my favorite national public radio episodes called This American Life and the episode was called The Giant Pool of Money. 
Yeah. And it talked about the housing crash like 2007, 2008 and what happened in the United States. And while obviously the situation is different, because for those who don't know Canada, you know, there are stress tests and qualifications to get a mortgage. We're not doing in Canada what they were doing, you know, 13, 14 years ago in the United States with Nina, no income, no asset loans. That said, though, the premise of the housing crash in the United States was the notion that housing values would never go down. And it seems to me that in cities like Toronto and Berlin and London and a lot of these places, that's fundamental to the psychology of homeowners and homebuyers. Yeah, 100%. And especially uh, for investors. I mean, the Bank of Canada just released some stats uh, and they find that in the city of Toronto, about one in four, just under one in four homes sold are basically bought by investors. <clears throat> and you know these are people who are buying single family homes. And just because they think prices are just gonna keep going up, buying condominiums. And a lot of this, you're right, is just rooted in this expectation. And what's interesting with the, you know, economists are a bit perplexed by this because what's happening in the GTA is over the past 10 years, you know, the, the price to rent ratio in Toronto has accelerated. And the reason that matters, I mean, it's kind of like if we look at um, you know, the, the rent is effectively like the dividend on the property, right? Sure, and, yeah. you know, if, if, you know, and that's kind of one way we make money, obviously, the other way is a capital appreciation. But the rent we're earning on on the actual purchase price has declined significantly, and largely because investors don't care about the rent, they're just banking on the capital appreciation, which I mean, has been going up, you know, who knows how, how much higher it'll go. I think we're getting to a point where we're pretty, pretty maxed out and it's getting fairly uh, unaffordable for a lot of people in Toronto. So then the natural question for anybody listening to the podcast, and by the way, as everybody knows, we never rehearse these. So we just decided, hey, you're going to do the podcast and all these questions are fresh, but you've been asked this question many times before. What are especially young people going to do who, number one, don't have parents who can buy them a house or put the massive down payment down uh, and can't live in the city anymore. Does that mean that all of this young talent who isn't making, you know, in the top 10% of like tech developer jobs, just not going to be able to live in places like Toronto? Is that the future? I mean, I think we're getting there. I mean, it's actually quite terrible. I mean, and, and you brought up these stress tests we have, which I think are important to think about how much people can borrow. I mean, you know, when people are borrowing now, they're not qualifying at the mortgage rate that they're going to pay, which is around 2%. They're borrowing based on this stress test rate, which is 5%, which effectively means the most they can borrow is probably close to five times their household income. And the problem is that in Toronto, the median house price is five, is 10 times the median household income, Right. So, you know, even if you're making, you know, $100,000 or $120,000, you know, household, $120,000 household income, someone, you know, a reader just emailed me that they're like, this is what our household income is, you know, their budget's about 600, 650,000, which you can't really actually buy anything in the GTA for that. I mean, you'd have to drive about an hour and a half out of the city uh, to do that, which is terrible because, you know, that's a household income that's above the median and they still can't buy a family home. Uh, and you need a massive, massive down payment. And that's kind of been one of the challenges. It's effectively been, you know, the people who have wealthy parents who are, or who have saved a ton of money who can get in because they need a huge amount of equity to actually buy our first home. And another thing that people have to understand about Toronto is that unlike places like 
let's say Hong Kong, London, even places like Amsterdam, to be over an hour outside the city doesn't come with the kind of public transportation systems that those cities do. You could be yeah. an hour outside of the heart of Hong Kong and it could be a pretty easy commute. That's not going to be the case in Toronto. No, I mean, exactly. Our, our public infrastructure, especially as it relates to transit, is not great. I mean, the province is working on fixing that, but these are, you know, 20, 30 year plans. So um, <clears throat> you're right, it is a difficult commute. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges, but that's what really what first time buyers have been doing, largely because they have no options. So certainly they're sacrificing, you know, on the lifestyle, they're having a really, really long commute. Um, you know, but I think especially with COVID now, I think many people are hoping that, you know, if they could work from home, even two days a week, it, it makes that lifestyle a little bit more, uh, a little bit more manageable. That's a pretty big if. In fact, it's funny because you and I talked about this during the pandemic. One of the things in so many cities was people saying, hey, I don't need to be in the city. And they were correct. <laughs> during the pandemic, they didn't need to be in the city. So they're like, I'll go work in Muskoka, which is like, you know, hours north of Toronto, or I'll go work near Niagara Falls. And that's great. But as we get into this coming fall 2021, we both agree that it's going to dawn on a lot of people that maybe that's not super workable. Well, yeah, I think so. And I mean, especially with, uh, you know, a lot of people I have in management jobs are telling me that they want their staff to come back and the staff don't want to come back. Um, and I think it's, I think it's going to be, I think the big challenge is going to be, you know, how employers adjust to this, um, you know, and, and, you know, certainly some people say, well, the, the, you know, people working out there will just quit their jobs, but I don't think it's that simple. I mean, it's hard to get a job when you're, you know, two hours outside of a, uh, uh, of an employment center. I don't know how many jobs are going to be that you can work completely remotely. So uh, I, I think it's going to be interesting how that all evolves over the next 12 months. And I think that there's going to be an interesting business philosophy. This week, one of the major banks in New York City said, hey, folks, we've got news for you. We're not forcing you back into the office. But if you want New York City money, you're physically yeah. going to be working in New York City. <laughs> Well, yeah, so, I mean, it, it kind of yeah. makes sense, right? I mean, if, if you're if you're working in Manhattan, I mean, the, one of the reasons the salaries are so high is because you're paying, you know, rents or house prices in that sort of that, that immediate area that are significantly higher uh, than if you were, you know, in a, in a more affordable market. So um, there is something to that for sure. So back to the infrastructure question we just talked about a second ago, I read a fantastic quote this week, and it talked about Toronto's infrastructure. People were complaining about things like the splash pads aren't turned on when they're warm. A lot of public <laughs> infrastructure things don't work. And the quote that I read that really resonated with me was something like this. Toronto is built to serve people who winter in Florida and summer in Muskoka up north, implying that all the city truly cares about is the value of people's homes continuing to rise, not the infrastructure. How much does that resonate with a long-term Torontonian like you who's sold and helped people buy so many homes? I mean, I think there is some truth to that. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's entirely true. I mean, I think the city does try to do things, but um, I, I do think that there's definitely uh, a mindset politically, both municipalities, uh, provincially and federally, that uh, certainly the, the motivation is, is seeing house prices rise. I mean, that's effectively what's been driving uh, Canada's economy for quite some time and is pulling it out of a recession. So, uh, and I think that's going to be one of the things that are going to make it hard for us to kind of, you know, to, to grow as a country when so much of our, our growth is really just dependent on rising home prices.
And of course, as we said at the beginning of the broadcast today, in no way is this limited to Toronto. My home base is Montreal, and even since the pandemic began, you know, prices have gone way up here. They've even gone up in Canadian cities, and honestly, nobody in Canada, nobody outside of Canada has heard of. <laughs> I was going to say nobody in Canada, but they have. Um, and it's happening all over the place. But let me ask you this. I think about this question a lot. So I'm a huge fan of Buffalo. Buffalo, for those who don't know, with no traffic is about an hour and a half drive from Toronto. It could be a lot longer with traffic. Mm -hmm. So a home, I was looking at your website today mm -hmm. and I saw a home on your website that was just over a million dollars US. That same home in Buffalo is going to be around 200,000. Mm -hmm. So how does that work? How is it possible to be an hour and a half? Is it just the type of businesses that are in the city for there to be such a price disparity between these two cities? You know, I, I think, I think there's a lot of factors. I mean, I think when we think about why people move to certain cities, um, you know, I think it's a combination of, you know, the, the culture, the community, the people, the schools, like, you know, how safe they feel in a particular city. And I think that's one of the things that has made Toronto particularly attractive to a lot of new immigrants. I mean, it has a reputation as being a, a safe city. You know, there's not a, a lot of political, uh, you know, violence going on. Schools are pretty good. It's pretty clean, you know. And I think, you know, it's, it's hard to say, I don't know a lot about Buffalo, but, you know, um, obviously they're not attracting um, the same number of, of new immigrants as like a, a, a city like Toronto is. So I think there's a lot of these factors. And it is interesting that people are, uh, are willing to pay significantly higher prices for homes to, to I guess, benefit from all these additional uh, amenities that a particular city has to offer. And of course, the same factors are starting to happen somewhere like Buffalo than happened in Toronto. As Buffalo becomes more and more of a tech hub, and one of the guests I've had on this podcast was one of the founders of a company in Buffalo, a tech company that just did their IPO. Yeah. And as these kinds of things happen in Buffalo, Buffalo's prices arise as well. So that home that I just talked about that's available for 200000 in Buffalo yeah. in 2016 or 2017 was probably one thirty. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think that's the interesting thing with personally with cities, the fact that uh, they can reinvent themselves, right? And, and it depends on the leadership and what types of businesses they're trying to attract and what type of, you know, communities they are trying to build. But yeah, once once these things change, and once Buffalo becomes, you know, again, a, a, a hub for for employment and in, and in industries that people want to work in, uh, you're right, that's going to push prices up there as well. So as cities like Buffalo look across, and of course, as we know, weather-wise, Buffalo's on the wrong side of the lake, <laughs> as they look across the lake to Toronto, Toronto inevitably has been looking at cities like Toronto. So here's a fundamental question for you. Is Toronto soon going to reach the point where it's San Francisco? And what I mean by that is where you're going to have to walk through a maze of homeless people on the sidewalk to get to your Porsche, because cliche as that is, that's really what San Francisco has become over the past 15 years in so many ways. It would be a shame if mm -hmm. that happened in Toronto, but isn't Toronto kind of heading in that direction? In terms of homelessness, you mean? And in terms of everything, in terms of the social issues, in terms of affordability, where there's such a bifurcation yeah. in the classes. It's like the Big rich yeah, yeah. and the not. Yeah, I, I, I do think we're definitely going in that direction. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, if you're renting in Toronto, it's it's so, so hard to get into the housing market. I mean, it's interesting. I thought about 
you know, my, my brother-in-law's, my, my, uh, my wife's brother is basically like, I don't know, 15 years younger than me. Um, you know, and he's in the market now looking at potentially buying a home. And I thought about, well, when I bought my current home, you know, 10 plus years ago, it cost me something like, you know, $600,000 or six, you know, and, and it's a spacious, you know, four bedroom family home in a nice area with parking. And for that money, he's basically only buying like a 600 square foot condo today. Yep. Right. And, and it's just, just shocking how in one generation, you know, you go from being able to afford a home for yourself, for your family, for the long term, to not even being able to get into the market. And it is terrible. And I do think we're getting to this point. And I think these issues have been have amplified. I'm finding on Twitter a lot over the past year with this rapid acceleration uh, in prices that people are really, really, I mean, unhappy uh, because it's getting very hard for people who don't have rich parents to get into this market. I'm so glad you mentioned the word unhappy because is it just me or when it comes to Toronto real estate on social media, people are on their last nerve. They seem to be just so mean these days and have no patience or am I just being a little sensitive? Well, I think they are. I mean, I, I think they're frustrated, you know, like sure. it's got it. It's so it's imagine like you're a household and you're making like a, you know, a household, a decent household income and you actually cannot afford to buy a family home, you know? And I think people are just so pissed and frustrated that it is so difficult to get into this market. Um, and I kind of feel for them. I mean, especially over the past year where prices have ballooned 20 to 30% in the suburbs. I mean, that's, that's a massive increase, you know, and, you know, it's, it's, I, I kind of feel a lot of the pain that a lot of these, these younger buyers are trying to get into this market feel. And what's making it worse is something that has been on Toronto people's radar the last couple of weeks. A large private company is buying up a bunch of homes. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. And they're buying them for a couple billion dollars. And essentially what they're going to be doing is they're going to be taking, let's say, a family home that would rent for $3,000. They're going to divide it in two. And now instead of $3,000 rent for the family home, they're essentially creating homes that are too small for families, two in the same building, but their total rent's going to be $3,600. At the same time, some people are trying to portray this company as being altruistic and helping the housing <laughs> crisis. I don't get it. This seems to me like straight up late stage capitalism and good for them if that's what their plan is. But don't tell me this helps the public at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of funny. I, I did see a lot of these comments online, uh, you know, people praising this company for providing more affordable housing. And, and the way they're defining affordable is just cheaper units, right? But you're 100%. They're just divvying up a property into smaller, smaller parcels and, and charging more per square foot and making more money. And, and a lot of these commentators are making it sound like these people deserve an order of Canada for, for, for solving our affordable housing problems. But um, but listen, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, companies like this, it's a bit shocking that it's happening in Canada with prices so high. Um, you know, they might help the rental market, but it's certainly not going to help the, the price of houses, uh, you know, if this type of stuff continues. Exactly. So I've got a question. So you started your PhD and imagine one day, let's look down the road. Let's say you decide that in some form you're going to get into public service with your freshly minted PhD. Okay. And let's say you go into housing policy mm -hmm. at the national level. What are your priorities going to be? I, so I think the number one priority, uh, you know, for Canada at a federal level 
um, is to really move away from, you know, policies that encourage using single family houses as a, as a financial asset uh, and it is an investment vehicle and it should be more for people to live in. Um, and like I said, I mean, when we think about how this impacts our market, you know, when, when a quarter of homes bought or bought by investors, um, it's not a positive thing. Uh, it inflates house prices. We're actually not building, we're building significantly fewer family sized homes now than we were even 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so I think that's the priority. Now, the downside to this, I shall qualify it, is that, you know, in, investors aren't all bad. They're, they're providing rental inventory, which has kept rents relatively balanced in the GTA. Uh, but the reality is this isn't the best way to fill the rental pool by having investors buy up single family homes. I mean, the best, because that inflates house prices, the best way to fill the rental pool is having investors finance purpose-built rentals because that doesn't inflate house prices, you know? Having 10,000 investors buy single family homes does, having them build 10,000 rental units does not. So we need to kind of shift longer term to have uh, you know, investors filling the rental pool for purpose-built rentals and, and single family homes should be for, you know, for end users primarily. I think that would be really great national policy. And, you know, it's funny because one of the themes we've talked about today so far really is kind of how myopic Toronto can be with certain things. So I've got a totally unrelated question. What is it about the mentality of Toronto as someone who's lived there for so long that believes that every single year the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to win the cup? And I say this, <laughs> oh, no. from, I say oh, no. this from the place where today on our national holiday in Quebec, the Canadians can, if they win tonight, and it's going yes. to be crazy downtown, mm -hmm. actually make the Stanley Cup final. What, yeah. what is it? I, I have so many friends who are Leafs fans and, and it's just like, it's, what's, where's, where does the belief come from? Is it just it, pure straight up optimism? It's, I think it is. I mean, it's kind of funny because I'm, I'm not a huge, uh, I'm not a huge sports fan. My, my partner is, she loves the Leafs and uh, you know, I don't know what it is. I feel like every year they're just super hopeful and it's, it's, you know, I think it's very difficult to be a Leafs fan because I think for the past, I don't know, three or four years, they've just been blown out of the water and every year. They just seem to crumble and fall apart. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's just just blind optimism and hope that one day they'll even get past the first round of the playoffs. I always think of, you know, Lucy holding the football for Charlie Brown and she convinces him in so many different ways. And of course, for the Leafs, it's getting great players like John Tavares to come to the team. And she convinces yeah. him every time she's not going to pull the football away. And then, of course, you know, the premise of the comic is every single time she pulls it away. And I've got to say that, you know, for those who aren't from Canada, the Montreal-Toronto rivalry is pretty huge. And it gave people in Montreal no small pleasure to not only defeat <laughs> Toronto, but to continue and watch the reactions from Toronto along the way. Well, defeat them and come back from, was it three games to one down? And just yes. come back and, and, and win the series, which is <laughs> John, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Where can people follow you? They should go to Realosophy, which is the name of your company. Yeah, uh, uh, Twitter, John Pisalis. Yeah, exactly. And you're always on TV, radio, etc. So they should look for your appearances there as well. Awesome. Thanks again for having me, Aaron. Thanks for coming, John. Take care.